So uh, in April, uh, the National Mental Health Institute did a study where they were trying to figure out how Americans are dealing or kind of coping with fear, stress, and worry. In particular, they wanted to see the prevalence rate of it in our society. They wanted to see how many people struggle with fear, struggle with stress, struggle with those types of things, and how it affects them. And the, the study came up with some pretty astounding things. Uh, just to give you a couple of the numbers, they learned through the study that 77% of people regularly experience physical symptoms from fear. So it's not occasionally experience them, regularly experience physical symptoms, detrimental physical side effects from fear. 73% experience regular psychological symptoms, emotional symptoms because of fear. Um, 33% of people claim that they experience an extreme level of fear. And 48% of people in America report consistently lying awake at night because of fear. Now, those percentages are really high. And, and those aren't even taking into account those kind of acute temporary seasons when we're, when we're really stressed out or really scared, like for students during finals week or if, if someone is struggling with a health issue or something like that. This isn't even taking those things into consideration. These are just regular, chronic fear instances. Um, And the study also showed that those fears are affecting people not just on a personal, private level, but fear affects people even interpersonally. It it affects their relationships with other people. They learned that 54% of people have said that fear causes them to fight with people that are close with them. And 26% of people report being alienated from a friend or family member because of fear in their lives. On top of those statistics, we know that 6.3 million people just in the U.S. are clinically diagnosed with a phobia. So that means um, it's not just like a typical fear about something, but it's a, a debilitating fear where someone goes to great lengths to avoid that thing that they fear. That's 6.3 million people clinically diagnosed with it. And it's not to mention people that don't go to see a psychiatrist to actually be diagnosed with their fear. Uh, And there's a huge array of phobias that people have. There's over 100 named phobias that you can be diagnosed with by a psychiatrist. And they range from things like public speaking, which is apparently the number one phobia of people, to something as innocuous as a cotton ball. There's a diagnosable issue where people are terrified of cotton balls. Um, And things get even as specific as a fear of kidney disease. I, I learned this. It's called albuminurophobia. It's a fear of specifically kidney disease. And I thought it was funny when I came across that because honestly, I'm kind of a little surprised given my track record with kidney stones that I don't struggle with that. But, um, but luckily I don't. But my point in sharing all of these statistics with you guys is to, to recognize that we are fearful people. 
we are a society, and this, this extends beyond American society, but we as human beings are scared people. We're fear, fearful people. We're afraid. We live in a world where fear rules. We live in a world where our fear is constantly influencing and guiding our thoughts, decisions, our actions and behaviors. It's far more integrated into our lives than we would care to admit. I can guarantee you that if you paused just for a moment and was honest with yourself, I'm sure if you thought about it, you could name at least one strong, almost intense fear that's currently gripping your heart. And it's probably something that isn't new. It could be something that you've dealt with for years even. So given our, our track record as human beings to be fearful people, what do we do with that? We don't want to live as fearful people. We don't want to be afraid. This is, this is a universally understood truth, I would say. Fear is by definition an unpleasant emotion. Every person can agree that the existence of fear in the world is evidence that the world is imperfect, that something's not quite right about it. Now, Christians recognize that this fear, that the existence and result of fear is due to sin and the fall that began when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. But even, even non-Christians can recognize that in a, a perfect, ideal world would be a world where there is no fear. We might like a little bit of fear when, say, watching a horror movie or riding a roller coaster or even skydiving. I'll admit I enjoy that a little bit. I get adrenaline rush out of it. But that's only, we, we can only enjoy that because we know that it's not going to last. It's going to end. We wouldn't really enjoy it if we knew that that fear was going to last after the movie was over or after we got off the ride or after our feet are firmly planted on the ground. Fear is a sign that things are not as they should be, and we all know it. Now this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 46 as we continue our sermon series on worshiping God in our emotions. This is a psalm of confidence, and we'll see that it gives us guidance on how to worship God in light of our fears. As I'm about to read it, so you can, you can begin turning there now, note the picture that the psalm paints of the world. One of the, one of the incredible things about all of the psalms, really, is the way that they they're so visual. They're so sensory. They connect with our senses. They paint pictures for us. They, they create scenarios that we can imagine in our heads. And this psalm is no exception to that. It's going to paint a picture of the world for us. I want you to pay attention to what that picture is. That will be crucial as we move forward in thinking about fear and its place in our lives. So follow along with me now as I read Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There are dozens of passages of scripture that address individuals, God's people, when they are afraid of various things. We sang the song of Moses earlier. Moses and Joshua were no exceptions to this. They were both frightened at different times because they carried the extraordinary weight and responsibility of leading God's people out of danger. Various kings throughout Israel's history uh, had to go to war with vast and mighty nations far stronger than they, than they were themselves. They were frightened as they went to war with them. Even in Revelation 1, we see that Christ, in his full glory, induces fear in John um, because he's so impressive, so vast, so mighty, so intimidating. The list keeps going. As I said, dozens of passages throughout Scripture involve men and women of faith being afraid. And if you think about it, this isn't remarkable. We've already established that we are fearful people. The people in the Bible are not unlike us in that regard. What is remarkable, though, is that in these dozens of passages where God responds to these people in their fear, God's response in all of them is the same. When Moses and Joshua and the Israelite kings and John were all afraid God responded consistently to them. Be not afraid. Fear not. God's response to fear in his people is consistently that. He calls us out of fear and into courage. And he does it by reminding us of who he is, both in his nature and his relationship with us. He reminds ones who are afraid that he is the almighty God and he is their God. In their fear, they have forgotten both of those things, and he's reminding them of those truths. The truth, these truths, instill courage and confidence in them so that they can put off the fear that they've had and put those things on. Psalm 46 is yet one more example of this. This psalm was written as a psalm of confidence to counter the fear and dismay that the Israelites were so often experiencing, just as we do. And like I said, it is doing that by painting a picture of the world. It's a painting a picture where God is present, that God is sovereign and over all things. Just like in all the other passages where God encourages people to fear not, the psalmist is wisely instilling the audience with courage and confidence by reminding them that God is our fortress and who we can trust for refuge and strength. The picture that the psalmist is painting is a direct contrast to the picture of the world that we have when we are afraid. And this gets to the heart of how we worship God when we're afraid. Psalm 46, like so many other passages in Scripture, are times when we, is showing us how we can worship God by remembering who he is, what he has done, and what our relationship with him is like. That is the overarching point of this psalm. 
the, the idea that we see here is that no, there is no room for fear in the heart of the Christian because God is our fortress. As we look more closely at the passage, that is what we're gonna see and hopefully take to heart. That is my prayer for you this morning, that you will see that because of who God is, because he is our fortress, there is no room for, for fear in our hearts. And so we can put that off and put on confidence and trust in him. Now to do that, we're going to look at the two contrasting pictures of the world that we can have. So the way that I was kind of thinking about this is imagine that we're at an art gallery this morning. Imagine we're at the Art Institute of Chicago or something like that. And we're going to be looking at two specific paintings. We're going to have the first one, for you guys, that'll be on the left. That one will be our view of the world when we're afraid. This is the, our view of the world when God is not in the picture. Um, this is a false and distorted view of reality. Then we're going to look on the right at the picture that Psalm 46 paints, the, the, the picture where God is present, where God is real and active and intimate with us. This is the true view that God intends for us to have. This is the view where there is no fear, where there's courage and confidence. That's the view that allows us to worship God through our fear. So as you can imagine, we're going to spend a bit more time on that second painting, but uh, it's important to recognize the first one because we need to be sensitive to the moments when we're trusting in that rather than the truth, when we're looking at that painting rather than the other one, where we're viewing reality in that way rather than what it truly is. So, so again, we're first going to start by looking at that first painting, and we're going to title that painting Anti-Psalm 46. To know what Anti-Psalm 46 looks like, we must first recognize that the key difference between the two views, as I've already said, is the absence or presence of God in them. On top of that, distorted or wrong views of God can also lead one towards a life of fear. Think about it. You might think that God is present, but if you don't think that he truly is powerful enough to protect you, you're still going to be terrified. You're still going to be frightened in life. It's God's existence and relationship to us that is the basis of our confidence in Psalm 46. So, so if we consider those things being removed or altered... We should have the anti-psalm, and we have reason to be afraid. So let's get a sense for what that anti-psalm looks like. It's, as I said, Psalm 46 without God in it. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Here, we already have an enormous disparity between the two views. The anti-psalm cannot say verse one. The anti-psalm says the opposite. It says, God is not our refuge and strength. He's not helpful in times of trouble. And that's what we're prone to believe when we're afraid. And that means verse two is altered because our basis of courage is gone. As you see, the basis of our fearlessness in verse two, is because God is our refuge and strength, because he is a very present help in trouble. And so if we can't say that, then we have every reason to be afraid. 
the anti-psalm says of verse two, therefore we will fear because the earth is giving way and the mountains are cracking and crashing in the mountain and the oceans are raging. If God does not exist at worst, or if he is fickle or inconsistent towards us at best, then we have every right to be terrified. Natural disasters happen all the time, and at any moment, they can bring terrible devastation to the earth. What hope do we have when an earthquake can wipe out millions of lives and a volcano can decimate an entire city? What hope do we have when a single virus can kill tens of millions of people, if not more? Most people have heard of the bubonic plague, the Black Death, but most people don't realize the full extent of what it did. It wiped out a third of the population of Europe in the 14th century. Even more than that, a lot of people don't know about the flu pandemic that was sparked in 1918. That pandemic, in just two years, just two years, it, it infected over a third of the population of the entire world, and it killed over 50 million people, according to conservative estimates. In two years, it did that. That is staggering. If we have no hope that there is a God who's trusted to protect us, why shouldn't we be afraid of nature and what it can do to us? Why shouldn't we freak out about global warming and things like that? The anti-psalm doesn't stop there, though. It gets even worse. There's more in the world to fear. Look with me at verses four through seven. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. These verses are drawing our attention to man-made disasters. Think about war and genocide and slavery and things such as that. In a lot of ways, human beings are our own greatest enemies and threats. Think about World War II. It took approximately 80 million lives when all was said and done. And that's not even including non-death casualties of the war. The nations do rage and the kingdoms really do totter as verse six says. But remember that this is the anti-psalm. Verses four and five aren't even present. God is not with his city. He's not in the midst of her. It shall be moved. He will not help when morning dawns. His voice is silent. We have no security if God is not present with us, even against, even when we face the threat of other men. We are at the mercy of our neighbors and the leaders of this world. This is especially scary now that we have nuclear warfare. We live in a world today where not only can one army defeat another, but one country can annihilate another just with a few bombs. Even if you don't look at full-scale war, people are assaulted and attacked by other, others to a demoralizing degree. Where does safety really exist in a world without God? Now, that's a real question that we have to wrestle with. I'm not saying all of this to scare or discourage you. 
I say all of this to show you how scary the world is without the God of the Bible in it. When we look at the world without considering God in it, it's a terrifying place. There's danger and risk everywhere. Even if we aren't talking about these extreme dangers that I've been talking about just now, there's still many reasons to be afraid if God is not present with us. A person who lives a relatively peaceful life must deal with a whole host of scary circumstances and realities. What if we do poorly at work and lose our job? What if, what if we make a poor financial decision and we lose our ability to provide for our families? What if we fail to protect our children and harm comes to them? Or we fail to raise them in a manner where we're raising them in the fear of God and they turn from him? What if we do raise them in the fear of God and they still turn from him? What if we, what if we disappoint those that we care most about? What if we embarrass ourselves or just lose our sense of purpose and joy in life? Even something as simple as being late to an important meeting or failing a test can cause sleepless nights in our hearts to race when we are awake. And why do such things cause us so much fear? It's because God, because without God, we know that we must depend upon ourselves in all of these circumstances. And if we're all, if we all really admit it to ourselves, we know that we are very weak and fallible, or fallible people, not infallible. There's little comfort to be found if we only have ourselves to rely on. Anything could bring us to our knees and leave us without hope. We cannot trust in our own ability to control anything. But isn't it so easy to put our hope in that, in control, in our ability to, to know the right thing, or to have it all together when the moment is right. It's so easy to think that we can depend on ourselves, that we can depend on our own ability to control circumstances, but we can't. And if we try, try to live our lives that way, we will only end up being fearful, anxious people. And the reality is that even if we do believe God is real and present, there is little comfort to be found if he isn't faithful to his word and promises. If he isn't always going to be a support and help to us, how do we know that he's going to be there when we need him most? Think about it in terms of your car brakes. The reason you aren't afraid to get behind the wheel of your car is because you believe that your, your brakes are trustworthy and they'll consistently work every single time you use them. If you did have to, if you, I'm sorry, lost my place. You would not drive your car if you knew that the brakes were only going to work some of the time. And if you did, for some reason, have to drive your car when the brakes were like that, you would be terrified to do so. The same goes for our trust in God. Faulty or inconsistent protection from God should bring us no solace because we know that he could fail us when we need him. To overcome fear, we need to know that God is a faithful, righteous God and that he is real, and that he is always with us. So take a moment to consider what you are afraid of, what you worry about. Then ask yourself this, 
when fear is taking over and worry is setting in, how real is God for you in that moment? How near does he actually seem? Are you even thinking about him at all during those times? A lot of the time, our fears become large because God has become small to us. We become so focused on the problems we face that we lose sight of him. As Christians, we must battle against this tendency. If we do not, then we will remain fearful people, failing to take hold of the great comfort and peace that the gospel provides. Maybe, though, God has never been a part of the equation for you to begin with. If you are a Christian and don't have a relationship with Christ, then God can bring no comfort to your fears at this time. The promises that we are shortly going to look at as we consider the proper Psalm 46 are meant for Christians. They're meant for God's people. In the Psalm, we, we are in this Psalm, it was given to Israel. They were God's nation at the time. It wasn't given to all the people of the world at that period. If you have not repented and believed in Christ, then know that anti-Psalm 46 is your reality right now. You are at the mercy of the terrible forces at play in the world without the assurance of protection from God. But God offers you a different picture. If you will give your life to Christ, he offers you Psalm 46. As we step over to the other painting, remember we're at the Art Institute. As we step over to the other painting, take heart in knowing that this new picture is the life that Christ purchased for us for all who trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's now consider Psalm 46 as it truly is stated. It is the true picture of reality for Christians, a reality that alleviates our fears and turns our heart to worship. Look with me again at verse one. God is our refuge and strength, a present help in trouble. This one sentence makes all the difference in the world. As we saw in verses two and three, the earth is still giving way. The mountains are still trembling and crashing into the sea. The oceans still rage. In other words, there's still lots of danger out there. Yet, God is in the picture now and he is a very present help in trouble. It is for that reason that we will not fear. We have a refuge and strength to seek outside of ourselves. And it is huge that his help is present with us. It's not just a future hope. It is a present reality for us. God isn't going anywhere. He is always accessible to you. At all times, he's a refuge and strength that you can rely and depend upon. And if God will see you through the major calamities that this psalm talks about, he'll see you through the day-to-day fears that you battle against. He will see you through the financial issues that you deal with. He'll see you through that big project you have at work that's on your plate that you have no idea how to handle. He'll see you through just the daily sin struggles and insecurities you have that sometimes feel more powerful than you can fight against. His grace is always present and active in your life because you are his child, because you are the one he is caring for and protecting. But what exactly does that grace look like? What does it mean for him to be our refuge and strength? It's important for us to understand what that means so that we don't get any false notions about life. Life after conversion is not always peaceful or calm. 
dangers and threats continue to be present in our lives even after trusting in Christ. Verses two and three clearly acknowledge that. Verse six still affirms that. The nations are still raging. The kingdoms still totter. We still deal with the reality of war. The world is still full of trouble, pain, and even death. And Christians are not immune to these things. So what then, what difference does it make for the Christian who has God as our refuge and strength? We see that question partly answered in verses four through seven. So look with me at those verses again. We didn't spend a lot of time looking at these, at these verses before, but pay attention closely now. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We see verse four starts with a reference to a river that is a blessing to the city of God. This is a huge contrast to the waters that roar and foam in verse three. It's amazing how God sh- how the psalmist is taking something that was terrifying just a verse before and shows how rather than bringing destruction and death, it's nourishing the land and the inhabitants of God's city. The Israelites would have understand this to mean and to speak to God's provision for the nation of Israel. Jerusalem or Zion, as it was also known, was the, was the city of God and it was considered the holy habitation of God because his temple was there. That were, that's where he resided in, on earth with his people. That's where his spirit dwelled. So quite God, literally, God was in the midst of his people there. And what would that result in? She, as in the city, would not be moved. With each morning's dawn, in other words, every single day, God would faithfully protect her. And we actually see another contrast here between the mountain being moved in verse 2, yet the city in verse 6 is immovable. It's crazy. The, with God's presence in the city, it is more stable than the mountain. In verses 5 and 7, the psalmist is assuring the audience that God is near, not far from his people. He dwells in their midst, even. He's with them, and he is their fortress for protection. He's not a God who comes and goes as he pleases. He is not only occasionally there for them. He's not only occasionally reliable. He is always reliable to his people because he is always present, because he is always their fortress. He is always providing for them and always being their source of security. That's what, that is what it means for God to be our refuge and strength. His people may face terrible calamities, but he will make sure that they ultimately withstand them. His grace will get them through it. The storms of life might, may, might rage outside, but safety and security are found within the walls of that fortress. If you think about it, we know that this is true of the Israelite people, just as these verses promise. Not even the Babylonian captivity could ultimately break the Israelite nation. Even when they were exiled, the nation was still preserved in a rem- remnant, and they were eventually restored Jerusalem to power. 
God's people suffered, yes, but they were not ultimately crushed. And this makes sense given God's awesome power shown in verse six. How do we know that God is strong enough to ensure that his people will not be moved? Because he need only speak and the world would melt away. If all the nations of the world came against him and his people, he would protect them. It would be, if all the nations came against us, it would be like an ant colony trying to snuff out a tornado. God's power and authority is supreme. God may allow enemies to appear to have victory for a while, but time will ultimately prove God to be the extraordinary victor. But how do we as Christians today know that this is true for us? Very few of us have a Jewish heritage after all, and this passage is speaking specifically to the Israelites. So how do we know that God is our fortress as well? How do we know that we can be free of fear as well? Our answer is suggested in verses 8 through 11. It points us to the greater redemptive reality at play. The psalmist widens the scope of God's protection and shows that God has worldwide intentions. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. It says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This passage shows us God's intention in becoming a fortress is for Israel. Yes. God, but God is doing more than that. God is the one who is speaking in verse 10. He is calling the whole world to exalt him. God intends to glorify his own name throughout the whole world, and his protection of Israel is a means towards that end. But why? And that's because God has meant all along to set apart a people for himself from all nations, and our Savior would come from the nation of Israel. Israel was set apart as the nation that would begin that work. God started with his promise to Abraham and fulfilled that promise in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the covenant that God made with Abraham was complete because Jesus, unlike anyone else, uphold the law, upheld the law perfectly. No one in Israel could do that. The, the covenant was incomplete before him, but in him, the covenant agreement that God made with Abraham was fulfilled And Jesus became the recipient of all of God's promises, all of his promises of protection and security. And even more than that, we know that now, having received the gospel, having received that message from Jesus, we know that for all who believe and give their lives to Christ, we are united with him and we are recipients of those promises as well. Therefore, all Christians inherit the promises of God, including those contained here in Psalm 46. We are the fuller, more complete people of God. He is with us and we will not be moved. This is why we have nothing to fear. In Christ, God becomes our refuge and fortress. In Christ, he is our very present help in trouble. In Christ, he is our strength. 
That is why we have, there is no room for fear in the Christian heart. But the passage says even more than that. Not only is God near to us as our protector, but he even orchestrates all things so that nothing befalls us that would ultimately overcome us. Look back at verses 8 and 9. Did it seem strange to you that it says that God brought desolations on the earth? It says in verse 9 that God will eventually end all wars, which is great. We want to see peace. Yet, Verse 8 says says something remarkably dark. Why would God bring desolation on the earth? And why would this psalm of confidence and joy even draw our attention to that fact? It's because God's sovereignty over all things, even evil, should be a great comfort to us, not a stumbling block. Think about it. Consider the disasters talked about in verses 2 and 3. Think those are the, consider the earthquakes and landslides and tsunamis and things like that. Those are the very things that verse eight says God has brought upon the earth. Yet the psalmist does not question God's goodness because of that fact. That line of thinking doesn't even enter his mind. Rather, he's rejoicing in it. God's sovereignty over those things should give us confidence in his ability to protect and sustain us through them. His sovereignty should alleviate our fears. God is not merely a protector trying to keep an autonomous enemy at bay that he has no control over. He is our protector and our enemy's master at the same time. At all times, the evil is under his control so that it cannot cause any more harm than he allows it to. A hurricane cannot damage a single tree beyond its allotted amount that God has designated for it. In war, not, not even an, one single extra shot can be fired beyond what God has ordained in his providence. He is in total and absolute control over all that comes to pass, both good and evil. And that means he can and surely will protect and sustain us. He cannot falter as our mighty fortress. And when Christ returns, all people will know and see the ways that he has shielded his people. He will be exalted for such displays of power, love, mercy, and grace. That is why he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The world, when Christ returns, when it sees him for who he truly is, for what he has truly done, we will marvel and be in awe of his protection, his security, his love for us. Friends, there is no room in the Christian heart for fear because God is our fortress. He is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. Even more than merely providing for our earthly needs, he will preserve our faith the salvation that he's given us through Christ, through every trial that we face. That does not mean that our lives will be worry-free. Far from it. We will die. People, Christians face martyrdom all the time. But no suffering will overtake us that he will not grant us grace to persevere through. All suffering that we face, therefore, is an opportunity to grow and rely upon him. All pain we experience is an opportunity to become more like Jesus. Even death for the Christian brings glorification and a welcome into the presence of Christ. What is there to fear in that? We looked at Psalm 46. 
anti-Psalm 46. I mean, we considered life without God as our fortress, without God as our protector. A life without God in the picture is terrifying. And one who lives that life should be afraid. It is a life devoid of security, and we are utterly, ex- utterly exposed to the world and its dangers. But in Christ, we are granted a life portrayed in Psalm 46. We are granted a life where God is our fortress, where we can face fears from inside the fortress rather than being exposed to the elements. We can face our fears. We are granted a life in which God truly knows and understands our weaknesses. We, he knows exactly what we can handle and he knows exactly what we need. He orchestrates all things so that no true harm can befall us. What are you afraid of? What makes your pulse quicken and your blood pressure rise? Really think about that for a moment. What things cause you to fear, cause you to get anxious and stressed out? It could be something outside of you, something external, or it could be something inside, something personal, something private. It can be something that causes physical, psychological, or emotional distress. It can be any of those things. We don't have to deny those things, the distress that it causes us to overcome the fear of it. Overcoming fear doesn't happen by suppressing our feelings and denying the effects that something has on us as though it doesn't matter. We overcome our fear, rather, by trusting God, that God is present in our distress and he is our fortress. We overcome our fear when we strive to put on a psalm worldview rather than keep an anti-psalm one where God is absent. We want to put off anti-psalm 46 and we want to put on psalm 46. We want to remember the truths contained here. We don't want to live lives as though God is not a reality and presence in them because he is. He will see us through the pain and we will be sanctified by, by the pain, by him, through it. When we seek to trust and believe this, we will be worshiping God in our fear. In that moment, we are putting off the fear and putting on confidence because there is an infinite difference between facing our fears alone and facing our fears from inside our God and fortress. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?